Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 4, All Things Hip. We took a little break here over the holidays just to kind of update our audio equipment, try to improve our sound quality. But new year, and we're back at it. Mike's also back. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be diving into all things hip. So, Mike, I saw that you just recently posted an article regarding, uh, was it Athletica Pubalgia? Just kind of like the athletic hip in general. It was, it was more of like a patient geared post. So kind of like some super basic anatomy pathologies and then kind of like rough treatment ideas. I'm going to do another one that kind of dives into a little bit more injury prevention, more so type stuff. So kind of kind of more geared toward patients. So all of that coming out. Talk to me about the evaluation for that. What are you looking for in that population? The athletic hip, it's going to be you know, your strains, things like that. Maybe some like acute irritation that leads to like some impingement type findings. Like a nagging type of injury. Playing. Exactly. And you kind of keep playing through and then it kind of gets worse over time. With a lot of them, they tend to have pain with activity that decreases with rest. Kind of that diffuse anterior hip pain, sometimes radiating around the side. You'll get that kind of like C sign uh, with some of those kind of like labral pathologies sometimes. Your evaluation is essentially just like any other evaluation that we do ever. Try and put the body through motions or actions or resisted motions that reproduce their symptoms and then use that to help guide your treatment. As far as looking at specific, like you were saying, motions and provocative maneuvers, you're going to want to look at hip adduction strength, core strength, glute strength. I think this is one of those like soft tissue injuries as far as not necessarily a soft tissue injury, but soft tissue is going to be involved as far as different force vectors being predominant over other force vectors and that causing a disruption at the uh, pubic symphysis joint. Is that kind of right on online with how you look at it, Mike, as different contributors to the force vectors at that pubic symphysis joint? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's the pubic symphysis kind of aspect of it. And that's kind of like one component to look at. But if you're going to try and subgroup it a little bit more, you're going to try and look at more of kind of like hip flexor dominant. And then a lot of times, you know, you'll start to dive into kind of like your anterior slings, anterior lines. With that is going to come a lot of like lower core stuff involved as well. Some different rotational things to look at. As far as like the hip itself, your kind of big components are going to be kind of that kind of like pubic related, like you said, more of like an inguinal groin pain. And those two are a little bit less defined and then you have your like adductor related talk to us about the difference and and what you typically see whether movement pattern wise or like strength deficit wise kind of delve deeper into the details of what like that hip flexor dominant would look like versus the adductor dominant and and all the different subgroups and how you would identify and stratify those i don't think there's as much on like your pubic related versus inguinal related um, but I think pubic related, you're going to have kind of that, you know, tenderness right at like the pubic symphysis. Pain with like a, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to pain kind of in that region where they more, where those muscles more insert and maybe like your like lower rectus kind of tends to insert. And then your adductor related is pain with your adductor testing. You put them through like multiple different uh, like adductor squeeze type tests. So one kind of, just kind of like hook lying, another one in kind of like neutral where, where they can just kind of squeeze with their legs extended. Then you pull them into more more abduction, have them, you know, pull, pull against. If you're kind of getting some pain reproduction there, you're obviously thinking that, okay, if we've reproduced their pain with testing their adductor musculature, it's probably an adductor contributing to this at least somewhat. And they essentially do the same thing with like your hip flexor stuff. So you're going to look at, you know, like your point normal, just like straight leg raise, hip flexion. Then you're going to look at your um, like Thomas test and then kind of add some resistance there. See if that causes any sort of irritation. I think, kind of good that, so. I think you hit on a good point there, Mike, is I feel like when it comes to athletic pubalgia and sports hernia and all these type of like groin and guinal type of, 
of syndromes that we see in the hip, it's really easy to get lost in the pathoanatomic medical differential diagnosis and kind of get away from the PT aspect of identifying movement deficits and potential muscles that are either involved or irritated and going back to our gradual loading movement re-education piece, because that's really all we need for treatment. So something interesting that that I kind of look for with these patients, and really with a lot of hip patients, is palpating the TFL. TFL is one of those muscles that kind of gets overactive. It can act as a hip flexor if the uh, the psoas isn't necessarily contributing to force production, and then it can also almost try to act like an abductor if the glutes are a little bit weak. And typically what you see is that if TFL becomes a primary mover for hip flexion, it's going to create a slight abduction moment, which the adductors try to counteract. And you're going to see a lot of excessive adductor overactivation and and tenderness. So it's just something to note. Also during running, you'll see excessive adduction during the stance phase. And this is also related to that glute med weakness that's going to help keep that frontal plane motion a little bit more neutral rather than in that adducted position. Mike, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. So whenever, so I've kind of looked at this maybe a little bit differently, but I think trying to get at like the same thing is I'll have them just do like a normal straight leg raise and see what their hip does. If they kind of uh, work into internal rotation a little bit, um, I'll have them do it in a little bit more of like an external rotated position and see if they're at least able to do that. And then I might just add in like a straight leg raise into their exercises and make sure they don't work into internal rotation. And then with any squatting, lunging, all that stuff, just make sure that they're not going into internal rotation there either. So Right. And that kind of falls back onto that other subgrouping of like gradual onset, more athletic hip pain, which is going to be your femoral acetabular impingement, your FAI. And that kind of falls back to similar type of, of movement dysfunctions as far as like weak glutes, increased internal rotation, causing that pinching. Something that, that I know that I've talked about with some colleagues is what they look for in this population, especially from a medical orthopedic standpoint, is differentiating a pincer versus a cam deformity and, and what the contributions from that are to the patient experience. So I was kind of thinking as far as a cam deformity, they kind of see that increased bony growth on the humeral head where they're hypothesizing that that pinches kind of on the superior anterior portion of the of the hip joint and the labrum. And part of me thinks how much of this is a just a symptom of loading, that repetitive stress to that area area causes an increased bony growth versus this being a true congenital developmental deformity that causes hip pain. I know it's theoretical, just something that crossed my mind. I think pincer, on the other hand, is something that's just going to be more congenital developmental. That's an over over coverage of that acetabulum on the humeral head causing a pinching effect. Yeah, I mean, I think for what you're talking about with like the cam stuff, I think it's working more out of theory at this point. They're starting to prove it a little bit more. Um, what they're finding is with like young, kind of higher level soccer players, hockey players, when they're, you know, the people that are going into excessive amounts of, you know, abduction, external rotation, where that kind of posterior aspect of the femoral neck is going to be abutting against the acetabulum. They're seeing more bony growth there, and that bony growth seems to be correlated to like their level of play. So your faster, stronger, better players have more of an adaptation there. And so, I mean, if you kind of couple those couple of things together, I mean, it just there's really not much of another explanation, I think, at this point than like just that chronic overuse. And it, and it seems that there's a potential, you know, kind of dosing factor where like if you are fast and strong and you're playing at a higher level, probably going to have more of an adaptation there than someone who's not quite able to put their hip through the level of stress that someone who's more athletic might be able to. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to get us back to athletic pubalgia here. And 
kind of differentiate between that and sports hernia. Some interesting info is that, like you were saying, it's more of a nagging injury. Typically, if an athlete's in season, you can manage it and help them get through the season and then kind of see whether they're going to be able to successfully overcome it conservatively or surgically. I think moving forward in in season three, we'll probably do just a whole season of post-op stuff where we'll just walk people through post-operative rehab, some small clinical pearls that that we can offer. So I don't want to delve too much in the operative side of this, but I think looking at and distinguishing what athletic pubalgia is versus sports hernia and what we can do to manage it conservatively. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the differences are they're there, but they're also, it's not, they're not, they're not super, super different as far as like the, like the treatment side of things go. Right. Um, I don't think they're even very different as far as the diagnostic side of things goes um i think with the sports hernia you might just work in a little bit more bias that lower core and working working your core testing into it um but i think that's going to be important for treating the athletic pubalgia stuff as well so i tend to look at both anyway i don't know so i i think that's really the only real difference is you know you may have to work in a little bit more of that core stuff and then kind of your anatomical slings and lines might come a little bit more into play yeah. Whenever you're dealing with that, with that sports hernia, but I don't think it's going to be that, that much different. Right. In relation to specific sports, something interesting that I have here in, in my notes that I had prepared for, for our conversation today is that the rectus femoris and the obturator externus are particularly important in place kicking. So those are two muscles, especially the obturator externus that you're going to want to target if you're going to have more of a kicker in a, in a football team, soccer player. And then the adductor longus and magnus are important during push-off for pitching. So just other muscle groups, let's say you, you're seeing someone for a shoulder and you know, you're trying to do a comprehensive strengthening program for return to pitching. You're getting your trunk rotation in, you're getting your hip strengthening. Don't forget about the adductor longus and magnus as far as important contributors during that push-off. Mike, any additional comments that you wanted to add? I mean, I think I think the big kind of summary is, you know, you might not, even if you didn't know anything about athletica pubalgia, you still know about manual muscle testing things, and you would know how you would treat that if it was an issue. So it's essentially just using your exam to figure out approximately what you think is the contributing factor, and there's probably going to be multiple little things going on with someone, but just like with everything else, try and reproduce their pain, try and figure out what irritates it, try and modify their activity around it, try and strengthen around it. Right. So before we transition to a different topic here, give me your five, you know, and it doesn't have to be five, just kind of like your your starter phase one, calm down exercises for athletic pubalgia, and then your phase two starting to transition to like more closed chain weight bearing, sports specific almost. What are you um, prescribing in that phase? Yeah. I mean, the, the phase one, obviously, I mean, you're just going to do your standard basic hip strengthening. I think if you try and get too complicated too early, I just don't really think you're going to get as much bang for your buck as you might like. I mean, it's going to be your, your clamshells, your bridges, maybe like an isometric adductor squeeze. Sideline um, adduction against gravity, maybe holding that. Exactly. Potentially some like mini squats within whatever their pain-free range is, working on equal weight bearing. Lower abdominal strengthening, that type of stuff. Something like a posterior pelvic tilt is normally what I would go into with them, make sure that they're able to handle that. And then starting to get at any like flexibility deficits, like if they're super tight through like their rectus. Are you aggressive with your stretching or is it gradual? How do you approach it? Pretty gradual, but mostly dependent on their tolerance. Like if they tolerate it great, then I'll tell them, you know, you can kind of push it a little bit, but normally I tend to be pretty, pretty cautious with it and tell them to kind of feel like a nice gentle stretch, no pain, let them know where they should 
feel it and hold it there. Normally, I do like two sets of a minute or four sets of 30 seconds, depending on what their tolerance is. And then talk to us about phase two. Once you're starting to get into like more closed chain standing, not necessarily sports specific, because that's when you can get fun and creative. There's really no right answer in, in that phase. But what are your go-tos? Like their pain's 50% better. You want to transition them to that weight-bearing stuff. What are you doing in that phase? Like if I think that, you know, kind of like poor eccentric control of like either an anterior rotating pelvis or like an internally rotating femur, or if I think some of that stuff's contributing to him, then I'll work on some of that stuff. Uh, but it all depends on kind of where I've kind of sub subgrouped them. You know, if like their hip flexor is heavily involved, I'm going to work on a little bit more things that kind of potentially address some hip flexor. I might work on if like I think the rectus is involved. So if you're working in like like the rectus, like something easy to do that you don't really need equipment for is going to be kind of like your like reverse Nordic where you're kind of like kneeling on your knees, try and keep your pelvis trunk aligned kind of vertically and then kind of move that as one unit with like your um, knee as like the the hinge going backward there. You're going to be able to get rectus there a decent amount. So that's like one of like my go-tos. And then as far as like the adductor stuff um kind of your copenhagen progression is really good i think that's something i think planks are great if you're also looking at getting hip flexor it's just essentially an isometric um what's the copenhagen progression just for anyone that's not familiar just kind of dive into that a little yeah so it's essentially something really easy that you can that you can do they they i think initially studied it with like youth soccer over in like the uk or somewhere right yeah, something like that. I don't know. And so it's just a gradual side plank progression, essentially, but with the knees separated with support to the top knee. So you can do it with like a partner where like the your partner will hold at your knee as you go into your side plank. And that forces you to do like an isometric adduction of that top leg into them to, to keep you supported. You can also work it where you kind of like bring the bottom leg up and down. I don't really, I don't normally do that when I work it more as like an, an isometric. And then you can gradually work where the support is from the knee or just above the knee to just below the knee and then closer to the foot to progress the resistance. And that was shown in youth soccer players to decrease their like in-season like adductor injuries pretty significantly. I don't know the exact numbers of this study. So that's something that I work in, even if it's even if it's someone that's not coming to me for like true hip stuff, even if I have someone that's knee or back or something, I tend to work that in if they fall into kind of more at-risk sports like like hockey, soccer. That's a good I point. Me, so yeah, work that in some of them too. Going off hockey, one that I know we did a lot at sports, especially like hockey players and soccer players, those that had adductor contributions. It's kind of doing like a single leg stance and then having the involved side almost like on a towel or like a low friction sheet. And they're kind of sliding their leg out and then back in on a Pilates reformer. This involves heavy co-contraction between the AB and the adductors, single leg stance control. I mean, you can do the involved side as the stance leg and the, the moving leg. And I think that's a really good one that kind of mimics that uh, low friction surface that's like involved in skating and that that constant co-contraction between the AD and AB ductors during their specific sport or task. I like to do that exercise using just like a carpet slider. And it's something easy that a lot of people have at home and it's it's about as low friction as I found. So Exactly. Yeah, those those are great ones. And I think um, that kind of helps at least everyone get their mind wrapped around what we're looking for. And I think the phase one is a little bit easier because it's like your gradual loading controlled dose exercise, get them out of pain. Think finding those creative ways to really target the impairments in phase two and 
transitioning to phase three is helpful, especially I know I don't see too many athletic pubalgia cases or even like inguinal hernia type situations where I work. Yeah, I think I think something that's really important too is working in because so many people, especially like younger athletes, don't target their groin with any of their strengthening. Um, so like adductor weakness is like a huge risk factor traumatic growing pain so getting kind of like coaches and you know whoever's working with these younger athletes because normally they're going to do some sort of conditioning um and see if you can just work simple little things like the copenhagen like some some sort of other ad doctor work conditioning can help kind of prevent injuries in, in that population all right so let's move on to fai and i'm going to kind of group labral tears into this just because fai is somewhat i mean labral tear is going to be like your medical diagnosis fai is going to be more of like your your movement impairment type of situation where there's an impingement increased anterior joint stress can it lead to labral tears potentially can it lead to progressive hip arthritis that type of situation potentially but fai is going to be more of like our physical therapy movement impairment type of situation and this one is kind of straightforward in regards to you're targeting the impairments you're doing your glute strengthening your core strengthening your movement re-education a lot of these patients kind of have pain that's on the lower scale they're already kind of in phase two and trying to just get back to their activity pain-free what what type of subgroups do you typically see fall into this category Mike, do you feel like it's your weekend warrior runners, your weightlifters that may just not have the accessory muscle strength? I'm so I, I see it mostly in athletes. That's just me. Uh, soccer players is a big one that I've seen it in. That's probably the most that I've seen it in as far as athletes go. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't have too too many of the of these with my with my adults when I was back there. So I mean, I I normally tend to just if it walks in, I think it's something that I just tend to just classify based on irritability and then just kind of go from there. Right. What type of movement impairments or movement dysfunctions or even like muscle force contribution deficits? do you typically see in this population and what are your strategies to address those? I mean, if it's your standard kind of like anterior hip pain, right? More of what could potentially be your kind of pincer morphology of where kind of going down that route, it's going to be those people that have just poor frontal plane control um, or, you know, triplanar control, whatever you want to say. If you want to get into like the, the like nitty gritty, you know, they, they, when they walk, when they run, when they jog, when they jump, when they squat, their femur is going to dive in into internal rotation. And then in theory, just to butt that femoral neck again against the acetabulum sooner. Right. Um, so the, those are the big things that I look for. There's some other kind of movement, kind of dysfunctions that will be present with anterior hip pain. Do you feel that anterior tilt is a related contributor to femoracetabular impingement? So maybe some core weakness causing excessive anterior tilt. Do you feel like that maybe closes down on that space a little bit and can be a contributor? For example, like an upright runner, anterior tilt, they get a little bit of contributions from increased adduction internal rotation. Now that's just another layer that we need to peel back to address the overall picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to look at hip flexor kind of tightness as well. Um, make sure they have the soft tissue mobility to not be stuck in that position and then work on improving their posterior pelvic tilt positioning. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's tough when you think about with like runners, right? Because you, you, you see someone that runs in like an anterior pelvic tilt and it's like, ooh, is, is that something that you actually want to address? Because that's kind of hard, right? We know that you know, contracting your core as you run or jump actually increases joint reaction force. And that's probably not something that, that we want with someone who's going to be running six miles. Right. Um, so I, I tend to think of things more in... Maybe a squat, it's more relevant. Yeah, I think probably a squat, it's a little bit more relevant. I tend to think about things with like that population is, is I want them to have 
better strength and like eccentric control. Right. And, and so, and so even if you're getting to close to the same end point, if you're not getting there as quickly, it's not going to be as hard on, on the joint itself. I think that's a good point. Honestly, I think not even for the hip, just in general in PT, we're so focused on stretching what's tight, strengthening what's weak that we really forget about eccentric control. And I think eccentric control is one of the most important things when it comes to movement just because uncontrolled motion is going to create more potential injury versus controlled motion. So really training co-contractions, training eccentric control is going to help be preventative in nature. Yeah. So as far as our strengthening goes, I think phase one is kind of like your basic, your glutes, your core, kind of everything mm-hmm. you'd strengthen for the hip anyways. Phase two, it's going to be your movement re-education, taking them out of those internally rotated adducted positions. I think these cases, at least when the pathoanatomical morphologies aren't too progressive, are relatively simple. I mean, there are some where they have like progressive cam or just like a very over-encompassing pincer, and those typically try conservative PT. Maybe they fail because the pathoanatomy is too much for them to overcome in those cases. But I think most of the time, I think you know, 75%, 80%, you can probably manage conservatively and just do the right strengthening, do the right movement, re-education, education, even your running analysis, adding a forward trunk lean to increase glute contributions, decrease some of that adduction and femoral internal rotation. And I think these people typically do well. You on board with that, Mike? Yeah, I am. The only time that, that I've had some issues is when it's like, no matter what I do, no matter how their activity is modified, that they just are unable to get their hip to calm down. Yeah. And so once the hip's able able to calm down a little bit, then it's then it's good because then it's a lot of, you know, strengthening, movement reeducation and it, and it's almost more of like injury prevention for the future. Yeah. Once once the, you know, an FAI's kind of calmed down, they can kind of do their activity and just kind of gradually work back into things and it becomes more kind of injury prevention for the future. One thing um, that I that I think is important to mention is actually some like soft tissue work typically on the TFL. TFL is going to be overactive and very tender. You're going to see this in your hip arthritis patients and your FAI patients. It's just one of those muscle, muscles that tries to kick in and do the work when there's deficits in the glutes, particularly during hip extension or deficits in hip flexor strength, particularly during like a swing phase or something like that. So I've seen some like quick within session relief, just doing a little bit of soft tissue on the TFL. It's not really backed by evidence. I can't say that it's necessarily a slam dunk, more anecdotal, uh, but just something to consider. And Shirley Sarman did some work on this using computerized models. And what she looked at was she basically simulated those that had hip conditions and introduced different force deficits at different muscle groups and what that or what effect that had on the anterior superior margin of the hip joint. And what she noticed is when you laid prone or in positions of extension that increased the anterior hip joint forces, when you did a prone hip extension with increased contributions from the hamstrings, particularly the semimembranosus, which has the best line of pull for extension, created a slight external rotation adduction moment that had to be counteracted by a internal rotation abduction moment from the TFL. And this actually increased the hip joint force. And then in supine during a straight leg raise, decreased contributions from the hip flexor, increased contributions from the TFL, also increased anterior hip joint forces. Now, I don't take this as written in stone again this is a computerized model this was not in live subjects this was a simulation based on force vectors but something interesting just because anecdotally i've seen it actually mirror and mimic a lot of presentations in the clinic yeah i mean that's that's a lot of nitty-gritty it is Um, it is yeah 
And I, I tend to not be as nitty gritty in practice. I haven't had, you know, 60 years like Shirley Sharman did. Yeah, to, she's intense, but to study this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think on a more elementary level, or at least like a basic clinical practice level, I really look for like during my early bridges, how many are, are over recruiting hamstrings versus glutes? Are they getting a true hip hinge? Are they, cr- are they cramping up in those hamstrings? Really trying to isolate that hip hinge motion hip extension through the glutes, driving up through their heels, um, making sure that they're recruiting the appropriate musculature. Again, I haven't found a good way where I can necessarily say that I'm strengthening hip flexor versus TFL. That's something that, you know, I've been trying to look over her research and see what she does, but I can't say that I found a good way yet to say, you know, I'm decreasing TFL contributions and increasing hip flexor activity during a certain hip flexion movement. I mean, I think the best way would just be to put the, the leg in a little bit of external rotation and maybe have them not go into a deduction as they do it. Yeah. You're going to do it. You're going to probably minimize about as much as you can. Well, the, right? the drawback in hip pain is when you externally rotate the hip, you're going to increase the mechanical pull of the adductor because it inserts right inside the medial side of the knee there. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm talking like 15 degrees, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Slight external yeah. rotation, but not yeah. drastic enough to increase the, the line of pull for the adductor. Yeah, like pretty much how you would manual muscle test your iliopsoas, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, that's like how I've tried. I have no idea if it's actually working, but Same. in my brain, I've justified it. So, and I'm always nervous to <laughs> practice my theories on patients. You know, I typically play it safe and just do, uh, you know, do the safe thing to get them better. I don't really uh, try to put anyone as a guinea pig out there, but maybe I'll injure my hip. I, I can be the test test study here. I have a lot of young kids. I I I, I can kind of guinea pig a little bit. They're healthy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to lateral hip pain. At least in your like middle age population, you're going to have a referral for hip bursitis, greater trochanteric pain syndrome, IT band syndrome, a lot of different names for it. I typically just go with trochanteric pain syndrome, lateral hip pain. Usually uh, trochanteric bursitis is a, is a misnomer. Yeah, you can have some inflammatory process of the bursa and some sensitization, and usually in those individuals, your bursa is highly innervated by nerves and can create usually higher pain levels. But in most cases, very few actually have an inflamed bursa, something like 10% based on this study from JOSPT. So I think more than likely, if you got a lateral hip case in your clinic, 10% or less are going to have that inflamed bursa. Something to note is that those that develop lateral hip pain, about one in every three, 35% have some history or current concomitant low back pain. So there is some type of relationship here between the core weakness to hip weakness, whether that pain causes the weakness that leads to the lateral hip pain or whether that impairment was there. And that's just a common denominator for those two uh, diagnoses. It's kind of the chicken and the egg scenario. But let's dive into gluteal tendinopathy. I think this is one of my favorite things to treat. I feel like for, for me, at least this is a slam dunk. It's not too hard. Mike, what do you typically look for in these patients? What do you typically do? Yeah. Does it hurt when you can track your AB ductors when we put that tendon into compression? So you almost put them in like a, like a, like a favor test, but like in like more hip flexion. So you're kind of like flexing them, putting in them into a little bit of external rotation and then a deduction instead of like your favor into like AB duction. Yeah. Honestly, one test that I do that um I don't really do often because I don't really think about IT band length really just because it's not a contractile tissue, but I do put them in that Ober test to kind of like have their leg hang off and push them down on the side of the table. That's going to increase compression through the lateral hip. And that's kind of the common denominator with these hip syndromes is 
increased compressive forces through the outside of the hip generates their pain. So I think that's a good place to, to look at as far as like a non-weight bearing test. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that's that that's the big thing. What what you just said there is put their hip into a position where it's going to create compression, kind of gluteal musculature against that greater trochanter, against the femur, and see if that irritates it. And then you can add a resistive aspect to it to kind of see if that irritates it and then go from there. Yeah, another test that based on this GOSBT study is single leg stance. Single leg stance is very specific. It's not as sensitive. So that means if someone has pain in the lateral hip during single leg stance, it's very high likely prob- probability that they have some contribution from like luteal tendinopathy, trochanteric bursitis, one of those lateral hip compressive pain contributors. It's not sensitive if they don't have that particular positive test and they could still have this syndrome. But if they do have it, then it's for sure, you know, you can kind of go down that path of saying they probably have lateral hip pain that's contributing from a gluteal tendinopathy. So that's the test that I always look at is single leg stance. The reason that is, is your center of gravity lies medial. So you're going to be kind of like trying to resist your center of gravity by pulling into abduction. And you always get some level of abduction in single leg stance, which is going to increase the compressive forces through that lateral hip. Yeah, I agree. And then so what are like the the big populations that you tend to see this with? Yeah, so mainly um, more women than men, but it can be more common in men. Women are going to have higher femoral adduction angles just based on their anatomy for childbirthing. Um, so when you have higher levels of adduction angles, especially during single leg stands, let's say uh, walking or running, this is going to increase the compressive forces through the lateral hip, generate a stress overload, inflammation, chemical cascade, affects the gluteal tendon, and then from there on, you're going to get yourself in a repetitive pain cycle if you don't do the right stuff to gradually load yourself out of it. Yeah, it's big with like the postmenopausal women too. For sure. 100%. Like Jill Cook group is doing a bunch of work in that. I mean, I, I haven't dug into it in probably a couple of years now. Um, but for they're looking at you know potentially hormonal contributions to it and things like that on top of the kind of basic anatomy, maybe coupled with the decreased activity that comes as you start to get older. So that's definitely one that I've seen seen a few times in that kind of you know late fifties or so woman that's fairly active but um, just comes in with this nasty lateral hip pain that's not super fun for them. And I think, too, what I've seen in that particular population is they kind of have what's called like the triad, or at least that's what I call it. It's where they have might have some component of like SI pain. And I don't want to get into the specifics of is it or isn't it SI pain, but they typically have a Fortin sign, which is pain where the uh, ilium meets the sacrum. Then they have the lateral hip pain. And then at times they will also present with like that groin pain, maybe mild, moderate hip OA. And I think like you were mentioning, there is a component of maybe increased laxity through the ligaments as a result of the childbirthing process. I know from my wife's perspective, there's more than likely a pelvic floor dysfunction component. Also breathing impairments as far as like diaphragm coordination with pelvic floor contraction which is going to create just more uncontrolled motion. And then at the same time, the weakness through the glutes, I think, you know, there's some that may not say everything's from the glutes, but I think when it comes to the hip, glutes are large contributors to, I'd say, a vast majority of the hip conditions, just because at least with the anterior hip stuff, you get that TFL that's overactive and painful. That's been demonstrated to increase anterior hip joint forces, contribute to increased stress through the anterior superior part of the hip joint. So I, I think for these women, it's a it's a combination of all those things. 
Yeah, I agree. And then so whenever you start to get into, we kind of talked about diagnosis, essentially just put the hip into something where the you're going to create compression in that lateral hip. So some sort of adduction um, with some sort of gluteal contraction is probably going to be the best way to kind of get after it. Then when you do, when you start to get into treatment for them, yeah. is there anything different than what we've talked about with the other hip stuff? Yeah, I think um, activity modification and sleeping modification early on in the pain modulation phase, like if they're side sleepers, getting them sleeping with like a pillow between their legs, decreasing that compression at night. From a treatment standpoint, you want to avoid at least early on any like excessive IT band stretching. I know like you typically think like IT bands tight, there's pain on the outside of the hip, let's stretch that pain out or whatever people think about it. I typically stay away from these compressive positions, especially early on. Maybe if I'm getting to like end stage phase two, I might start them from an adducted position and then have them contract to abducted position, maybe to build resiliency through that that motion and that tendon. But this is going to be like really end phase and it has to be something that's relevant to them. I won't necessarily venture that far in, into doing that with everyone. One exercise that I like is kind of like a closed chain hip external rotation. So you've got like one leg slightly bent, your stance leg. On the right leg, you're kind of like on the ball of your foot and you're starting in an internally rotated position using that ball of the foot almost as like a pivot point and then rotating out into external rotation and then eccentrically controlling that internal rotation as you go back. And you're almost like in a little mini squat position trying to get, you know, just soft knees, soft hips so that you're not locking out those joints. And then really strengthening the external rotators from a, not necessarily a closed chain, but a weight bearing position. And then eccentrically controlling that internal rotation past midline. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good exercise. I enjoy that one. And then you can add some resistance with a with a band kind of wrapped around them, anchored opposite of their stance leg, and then they kind of turn into the band, kind of wind it up a little bit more to kind of progress that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. You can always change the angle of resistance. Like if you're focusing more on like a concentric internal rotation, adduction with external rotation control and vice versa. If you're going into ER with internal rotation control, you can always change the, the angle of pull. I think that covers it for lateral hip pain gluteal tendinopathy. If you want to read more about it, we can send you the gluteal tendinopathy article from JOSPT. I kind of use that as my, my reference point for where to start. Before we transition into more into like the hypomobile hip, hip arthritis type of situation, which I think is kind of like the last main subgroup between everything we've talked about and then adding that subgroup here at the end that's going to cover the vast majority of your presentations and hip syndromes, I want to talk about something that's a little bit more off the beaten path. That's going to be your avascular necrosis of the femur. This is going to be like progressive mobility deficits, pain with weight bearing, something that just doesn't kind of make sense. Don't feel like, hey, this is something that I... I've never seen. Just if you're not sure, send it back to the physician, refer back. Oftentimes I've seen a lot of these get missed by PCPs, orthos, everyone down the line, and it kind of takes a lot of pushback and getting people back to the right provider to finally get the, the right diagnostics, which I believe is a CT scan for looking at that particular pathoanatomic diagnosis. Mike, are you familiar? Is it CT scan? That sounds right, but I would not trust my word. I think we should probably verify that. All right. Don't take our word on that. We'll verify it. But I believe that's the one that comes up with like those 3D images of the actual hip joint and the hip area rather than an MRI, which kind of just lights up areas of inflammation. So I don't think an MRI would be very specific for, for detecting that particular pathoanatomic diagnosis. And usually what happens is one of the arteries that wraps around kind of like the femoral neck, femoral head just isn't providing enough blood supply or there's something dis disrupted within that artery and that causes the actual bone tissue in the femoral neck, femoral head to actually start start dying. Let's move to the hypomobile 
hip, hip arthritis. This one I feel like is not the most challenging, but it's kind of like the most ambiguous. Like you get your older adult, like chronic hip pain, you know, some mobility deficits. I feel like with these, it's kind of like hit or miss. It really depends on how progressive the arthritis is through the hip. This is one's also tough too, because, you know, you got to be able to walk, you got to be able to live your life, but really just, there's a very narrow margin of error for that therapeutic exercise dose where it's very easy to underdose and they don't get better. But then on your end, you know, you might hit the mark right, but they they still might have to go out and do whatever they need to do for life and they flare that hip up and and you really don't get the progress because of the demands of their their daily life. So what do you typically do for this population? I mean, obviously your normal core, hip strengthening, all of that type of stuff is there. What do you find beneficial outside of that stuff as far as like mobilization goes? Any recommendations or education you give the patients or um, anything that's kind of off the beaten path that, that you could drop as far as like a clinical pearl? I, mean, I, I tend to do some hip distraction with those patients, um, long axis, and I'll probably take them into like a little bit of like hip flexion um, with like a belt and then just kind of distract kind of along the, the plane of, of the joint itself a little bit. And that I've seen like mixed results, but for the most part, like most people get some sort of symptomatic relief, at least in the short term. And maybe that incurred that allows them to be a little more willing or tolerate better some of the exercises that we do. Um, but I think it's just, you know, generally hip strengthening. If they can do it closed chain, great. If closed chain hurts, then do a little bit more open chain stuff. Probably working some open chain stuff with all of them. You know, some clamshells, some bridges. Uh, I mean, the one thing is that when you kind of get that glute med going, going hard, you're going to increase comp- like compressive forces. Um, and so if they don't like that, then I'll probably just work around that a little bit and then work it in kind of nice and gently as tolerated. But I think just keep them active. Yeah, I think the hardest part of this population or this particular presentation is for me transitioning from open chain to closed chain as you start to get into like transitioning from double leg to single leg closed chain activity where there's always some level of femoral adduction and like you were saying you're getting higher levels of compressive forces through the joint. This is kind of where people are doing well for the first few weeks of their their plan of care. And then to find that therapeutic dose transitioning from double leg to single leg closed chain gets challenging. And then like you were saying, keeping them active, but trying to find an activity that doesn't necessarily flare them up. I know a lot of people want to get back into walking. And that's one of those that, that that therapeutic dose is just very, very narrow margin of error. Do you typically see improvements in hip mobility? Like have you had uh, at least... A good track record of improving internal external rotation deficits hip flexion deficits with your manual therapy or do you feel like you know i kind of do it because i'm supposed to but it's hit or miss probably more the latter now i mean if you're asking like do i get like <clears throat> sorry uh, like measurable changes i think yeah like you measure it once and you get it and you work on them a few times and you get you know, a couple of extra degrees of external rotation a couple of extra degrees of internal rotation maybe a couple extra degrees of hip flexion like sure but does that like actually make a difference I don't really know. I think what you said um, about like they, they tend to they tend to like do pretty well early on, and then you kind of get like stuck as you try and progress them. I feel like I've had patients that are like pretty optimistic about the whole like rehab process. You know, they come in after our first like four or five visits. They're like, yeah, my pain's definitely better. I'm able to do more, and then we just kind of get stuck there, and we kind of ride it out for you know four to six more weeks with like minimal to no improvement, and then kind of go from there. I, I'm picturing like a, a, just a couple like specific patients. Yeah. In, in, in my brain, you know, and it's, it's, you know, kind of that point where it's what can we like actually do for the arthritis pathology itself? 
right? So we're not going to do much there. So if our goal is to kind of like gradually load that and improve its tolerance, I mean, it's kind of irritating whenever whenever you load it. So do we go more of like an indirect route and try and decrease their 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 the amount of pain that they're feeling otherwise? Like, do we try and get them doing um, higher intensive activities, which you know is going to decrease their overall pain sensation? Do we get them doing you know some circuit training? We're working on whole body stuff, trying to get their heart rate up if they if their health can tolerate that um, and get some kind of like indirect effects that way. I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling here. No, but. I, I got it. No, no, I, I, I got what you're saying. It definitely makes sense. I feel like we're at this point kind of portraying like a bleak outlook for this patient. So I think <laughs> I think um, I want to kind of pivot here and say that these are challenging cases. They're definitely difficult, like we mentioned, to progress them and get them to that final finish line just because like you were mentioning, those those changes in the hip joint have very real effects on their function. So I think the key to the success that I've seen with these patients is heavy education, that, that pain science education, not from like a neurophysiological standpoint, but more from just like your very simple like stress rest repair process, educating them on the influence that the diagnosis has on their activity levels, education on therapeutic exercise dose. So something going to the extent of, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, I have this hip arthritis. It's something that's a change in the joint, how in the heck is exercise going to help me? So the main thing I try to touch on is that the arthritis is going to change the properties of how the joint's loaded. So it's going to make it a little bit more challenging to gradually load and build resiliency through the joint just because the amount of stress through the joint is going to be increased from the lack of properties of the joint being able to absorb and disperse some of those forces throughout, like let's say the labrum, which may not be as healthy as it was at a younger age. But again, I still try to bring it back and say that those degenerative changes are kind of like gray hairs. They're normal. What the most important part is hitting the therapeutic exercise dose and the gradual progression, and that's our value is guiding you through this process of not doing too much or too little and helping you build resiliency little by little. And as your body gets used to the activity, you'll feel less and less pain. And I think framing it in that in that mindset is going to help them outside of, of therapy. What I typically see is patients have the mindset of like, what are the best exercises for this? And they don't think that anything they do on their own matters. So like during the holidays, you might have someone who's putting away Christmas decorations for four hours and may not know like, okay, let me break this up into multiple days or take a break or whatever it might be. So really educating on that piece and, and guiding them through how to manage their activities outside of therapy while you need to do what you're doing in therapy is going to be huge. Like I know I had a patient recently who came in super flared up, kind of did some like soft tissue work, mobilization, you know, got her pain down. And then she told me, hey, like I got to put away Christmas decorations. I'm kind of nervous. I'm like hurting. Gave her the education that I kind of just described. She came in the next day. She said, hey, like you were right. I iced, I took breaks, I elevated my legs, feeling good today. So I think those type of situations really demonstrate the value in what we tell patients to do versus what we actually do in the clinic with the exercise piece. And I think for these particular patients, the education on the pain science is, is huge. I could not agree more. I think it's really important that, that that's something that, especially with these like chronic things and things like that, is that it's it's always going to be there and it always has the potential to flare up. So getting your patients to understand how to manage the injury once they're once they're done with PT is, I think, where we have more of a potential to make an impact versus their six, 12, 8, 10, 12 week plan of care, whatever the heck it is. Um, because that's a pretty small amount of time in the grand scheme of things if you're not giving them the tools to manage it outside. 
Yeah, and I think too, especially if they stop activity, let's say for like a week or two, that those decreases in actual resiliency are more substantial than let's say someone of a younger age with a healthier hip joint. And I think educating on like like you were saying, the level of conditioning and what that looks like when they leave therapy, like that it has the potential for flare up and that if you stop moving and stop doing these exercises that we prescribed, then, you know, this isn't something where you're automatically healed. It's something you really have to manage and continue to work on, you know, for your whole life if you want to keep doing the things that that you want to do, especially as you age. All right, Mike, any final thoughts, any recap, anything that you wanted to add before we close? I don't think so. Not, nothing huge that we didn't touch on. I really enjoy treating the whole like, you know, kind of sports hernia side of things. And I think that that kind of like eccentric control through like a full range of motion as they get into, you know, kind of hip extension and their, their trunks kind of going in, into extension too, I think it's really important when you're looking at higher level kind of exercises for those patients. I think something to kind of dig into is a little bit of kind of like the anatomical swings and lines. I've been working that into a lot of my rehab for that. Yeah, I think we covered it all. I think we hit some important points. And I really enjoyed this episode more than than I thought I would. Um, I see a lot of hips just because indirectly, you know, I saw a lot of low backs when I was at sports. And I think, you know, overall, I have pretty good success with hips. Some of the hip arthritis ones are a little bit more challenging for all the, the barriers and obstacles we discussed earlier. But it was nice to kind of like look back at some of the more off the beaten path stuff that I don't typically see, like you mentioned, like sports hernia or athletic pubalgia. I think I've probably seen those the least. So I really enjoyed it. Next week, we have the knee and this is going to be your bread and butter Mike so I'm going to have to take the lead on this one and uh, we'll see. yeah this is, this is where you thrive so all right we'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah and I, and I specifically enjoy patellofemoral pain so I'm, I'm interested to dive into that and kind of catch up with the evidence and see where everything's at in that realm yeah other than that thanks guys for joining us for today's episode we really appreciate you guys listening in if you're enjoying the content just leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts. subscribe follow us on facebook thanks guys have a good day and uh we look forward to uh recording next week's episode see you guys